0: Good. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you, and I'm excited about starting a new series in the book of Judges. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a bit of a change of pace from Matthew, um, but I'm looking forward to our journey. Well, when I heard about the day trip to the Blue Mountains for a bushwalk in the weekend, suddenly the sun, sh- the sun shone like today. It's supposed to be raining, but the sun's shining and the grey boredom of life at boarding school disappeared. Here was a chance to escape from what felt like prison for a day. But there was just one hitch. I was rostered on to do Dairy Squad. Now, some context here. I went to an agricultural high school, Hurlston Ag High School, and Dairy Squad involved getting up around 5.30am while it was still dark and spending the next couple of hours milking cows and then shoveling and hosing off cow manure from the dairy. Uh, An ideal way to start the morning, really. So when it came to a choice between doing dairy squad and the prospect of escaping school for a day, well, dairy ran a poor second. But I had a plan. I bribed Paul, Paul Drake to do dairy squad for me for the princely sum of $5. Now, Paul and I weren't exactly friends, but for $5, he was more than happy to play ball. So, I happily got onto the bus to enjoy a day of freedom in the Blue Mountains. But then, halfway through the day, Mr Shippers, otherwise known as Mr Whippy, because he would bring ice cream for the kids in his house, Mr Shippers happened to notice that I was happily taking in the fresh air of the Blue Mountains and not doing dairy squad. You see, I'd forgotten that he knew which kids were on squad duty. He then dragged it out of me that uh, Paul wasn't actually filling in for me out of the goodness of his heart, but there was some cold, hard cash exchanged. Now, Mr Shippers was an upright man, who viewed bribing your way out of squad somewhat dimly. He then informed me that a trip to the side door was awaiting me upon our return. Now, a bit more context here. The side door for us kids was like the entrance to the execution chamber. It led to a little room where we got the cane Yes, this was back in the dark ages where corporal punishment seemed like a fun idea to boarding school teachers. And Mr Shippers not only had a reputation for being liberal with giving out ice cream, he was also, I think, the second most feared teacher when it came to giving the cane in the school. Alas, my day of freedom had ended in disaster. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, Marshall, where on earth are we going with this? What on earth is the the point of this drawn-out story? Well, there is a point, and here it is. I compromised and cut corners to get what I wanted, but in the end, it came back to bite me. And in today's passage, we see Israel start off well, but then they compromised. They took shortcuts on following God and obeying him. And the result is that the choices they made end up coming back to bite them. The seeds of trouble are sown in Israel's decision not to obey God in destroying the Canaanites in the land. Today in Judges 1, we see that God is with his people just as he was with them during the days of Joshua. They get off to a promising start and God gives them success. But then some of the tribes find the Canaanites too strong to defeat. Instead of following through on God's instructions and trusting him to enable them to drive the people out, they compromise and cut corners by letting the Canaanites stay and making them slaves of the Israelites, by making a covenant with them. It seems pragmatic. It seems to make sense. It's the easier short-term solution, but in the long term, it will spell disaster for Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the chance to dig into the book of Judges today. We pray that through, uh, through your word you will speak to us. Father, speak to us of your faithfulness, uh, the fact that you are faithful to your covenant, to your promises. You're an unchanging God. But the people were flaky. The people uh, were not faithful. Uh, and they reaped the consequences from their actions. Father, speak to us from their negative example uh, show us that shortcuts with you never pay off we pray today that you will give us ears to hear what you say to us in Jesus name, Amen I forgot my clicker so just a bit of background to the book of Judges um, before we get going Um, under Joshua who came uh, after Moses, we saw last year, if you remember back to the book of Joshua, if you were here with us, the Israelites almost finished the job of taking the land. Almost, but not quite. Quite a lot of the Canaanites, the original people of the land, remain, remain unconquered. You may remember that God had told the Israelites to completely wipe out the Canaanites who were living in the land. Now, that sounds pretty barbaric and unnecessary to our ears. But again, you might remember that these were people who would have been poisoned to Israel had they stayed. Their religion involved child sacrifice and temple prostitution. If they were allowed to stay in the land with Israel, it would have been disastrous for God's people. They would intermarry and be enticed to worship their gods and forget Yahweh, the one true God who brought them out of Egypt. So now Joshua is dead, having led them into the land and and for the most part conquered the land. And it's crucial now that the people finish the job, that they continue to obey God and, and uh, finish the task of taking the land. And for the first half of chapter 1, things look pretty good. So Israel get off to a promising start. They continue to rely on God and trust that he is going before them, just as they did under Joshua. They continue to trust that he is the one who will give them victory over the Canaanites. Let's have a look at uh, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands and then verse 4 when Judah attacked the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek and they keep going and God keeps giving them victory verse 8 the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it they put the city to the sword and set it on fire after that Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Abba, and defeated Sheshai, Achiman and Talmai. And then the story focuses right in on the fortunes of one family, that of Caleb. Have a look at verse 12. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksar in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksar to him in marriage. And then there's more detail that follows. Aksar, Caleb's daughter, in, daughter then gets her husband to ask Caleb to give her... Um, um, springs of water so that uh, the land will be well watered. This kind of seems like superfluous detail, doesn't it? Why all this detail on one family? Well, do you remember who Caleb is? If you think back to Deuteronomy and, and Joshua, He was one of the original 12 spies who Moses sent up to Canaan to spy out the land when they were still in the desert. Only two men, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report from the land, trusting in God's promises to give it into Israel's hands. And from that point on, God promised Caleb, as well as Joshua, that they would survive the 40 years wandering around in the wilderness and eventually make it into the land. And here we have Caleb getting his inheritance in the land and also his daughter getting the land as well and providing for his daughter by giving her watered land at that. In other words, this detail shows that God is faithful. In fulfilling his promises to Caleb, God has been faithful to Israel as a nation, but he also cares about the details. He also cares about individuals. And we see it with others in this story too. Have a look at verse 16. The descendants of Moses' father in law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Moses' father-in-law Jethro wasn't an Israelite. He was from Midian. And yet God blessed him and looked after him. And here we see God looking after his people, the Kenites, who were a tribe of the Midianites. Even though they weren't a part of Israel, God was faithful to them in giving them an inheritance. We can easily brush over the details of this chapter, but there's comfort for us in these words because they show us that God is not only faithful to his promise to people en masse, uh, to Israel as a nation, and bringing it today, faithful to us as his church, But he is faithful to you as an individual. He knew that Caleb's daughter needed water, so he provided for her needs. God cares about Trevor. God provides for Stella. Sorry to pick on you guys, embarrass you. (laughs) God cares about each one of us as individuals. He knows that your needs as individuals is different to my needs. He takes care of the details in your life. If you're lonely or struggling, if you need a job, if you're battling an illness, God knows those details and he cares about them and he is faithful in providing for you. So God was faithful to the people. He went before them and he defeated the Canaanites. But then we start to get a hint that things aren't quite going according to plan. Because the Israelites begin to hit some roadblocks. Have a look in verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Verse 21, the Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live with them in Jerusalem. So the people of the land were too strong for the tribe of Judah. We're not told why the Benjamites didn't drive out the Jebusites. Perhaps the tribe of Benjamin didn't want to drive them out. Perhaps they weren't fully invested in obeying God. Well, the picture becomes clearer as we go on that other Israelite tribes also were less than fully committed to obeying God's command. And in our second section, we see that Israel was more interested in pragmatic pragmatic corner-cutting than obedience to God's word. In the last part of chapter one, we see tribe after tribe compromising on God's commands. Have a look at some of these with me. Verse 27: But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Ta'anak or Dor or Ibliam or Medigo, Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol, for these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labour. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akor or Sidon or Ahlab or Aksib or Helba or Afek or Rehob. 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanites' inhabitants in the land. Verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Ijalon, and Sha'albin. One after the other, the tribes of Israel failed to drive out the Canaanites' living in their allotted territory. And so they lived among them, side by side. Now, you might think, okay, so what? What's the problem? Israel had basically succeeded in capturing most of the land. Each tribe were now able to live in its territory without being worried about being driven out. As well as that, even though they ran into a bit of trouble with the Canaanites, they managed to find a solution that actually seemed to be beneficial to them. Have a look at verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. So, okay, they didn't drive them out, but they made them slaves. And now Israel were benefiting from all this free labour. Not a bad result? What's the big problem? Well, the problem is that they had disobeyed God. They had chosen to cut corners on God's instructions for an easy, pragmatic solution. Israel had refused to carry through on what God had clearly told them to do, to completely wipe out the Canaanites. How do we know that they're disobeyed and not just lacked enough firepower to defeat them? Because God tells us. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 2. God clearly says, And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? You see, by agreeing not to destroy the Canaanites but make them do forced labour, the Israelites made a covenant with them, an agreement with them, and deliberately disobeyed God. And it wasn't as if they had no choice because to be in that position, to make a covenant with them and force them to become their slaves, they had clearly defeated them As we saw in 128, we are told when Israel became strong then they put the Canaanites to forced labour. They were in a position of strength. They were in a position to obey God and destroy them but instead they chose to let them live and make a covenant with them. God had given them that command for a very good reason. We saw earlier that the Canaanites would be poison for Israel if they were allowed to live side by side. They would drag them down into sin. They would pull them away from God. God goes on to tell the people that what they did would come back to bite them. Chapter 2, verse 3. I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. And their gods will become snares to you. And that's exactly what we see unfold through the book of Judges. Israel falls into idolatry. They bow down and worship the gods of Canaan. They turn their back on Yahweh, the true God. As the story of Judges progresses, the state of Israel regresses. They fall deeper and deeper into sin law and order breaks down and the nation falls into depravity and chaos. Israel end up paying dearly for their decision to cut corners, to take what looks like the easy way out. It seems to make sense at the time to make use of these Canaanites living among them, make them do the hard labour. It saves the Israelites from having to go into battle, peace rather than war, That has to be good, right? But no no matter how appealing it is, no matter how much sense it seems to make, taking matters into our own hands and not trusting in God's agenda always comes back to bite us. The Israelites chose pragmatism and convenience over obedience. And choosing one of those over the other is something we have to do as God's people constantly. I want to just quickly look at one area that affects all of us and that's the area of relationships. If you're single, currently single, you'll be constantly facing the pressure to find someone to start dating, to look towards marriage, particularly if you're a bit older. I remember those days, there were times when I was pretty obsessed with finding a woman It influenced which ministries I'd serve in, which churches I'd visit, how I'd spend my time. The pressure to find someone can sometimes be intense from family, from peers, uh, or, or even just the pressure we put on ourselves. And there's a temptation to be pragmatic about it and cut corners on God's plan to find a believing husband or wife and start dating someone who's not a Christian. There's no one suitable at church, or this guy is just right for me and I believe that God can make him a Christian. It just feels right and the timing is right. But friends, I've seen too many times when that comes back to bite bite people. Like Chloe, one of Julie's best friends at school, She was the most vocal Christian in her class and instrumental in Julie becoming a Christian. But then she met Tony. Lovely bloke, but not a believer. They ended up getting married. And the last we heard, Chloe hadn't been to church for years. I don't know if she still calls herself a Christian, but certainly there's no evidence of it in her life. Disobeying God is always bad policy. God wants us to marry another believer for a very good reason. Going against his plan will come back to bite us. And just a word for those of us who are married or potentially working towards marriage. The principle of putting obedience over cutting corners and taking shortcuts applies to marriage as well. Marriage is hard work. Living out God's command to love my wife sacrificially is hard, inconvenient, sometimes even painful. But cutting corners in our marriage is more painful in the long run. I can tell you to my shame that there have been times in my marriage where I've taken Julie for granted and not given her my best time, not put her before myself, and not being considerate in my choices. It may be easier in the short term to take the line of least resistance to watch Netflix instead of listening to my wife. But those little choices over time add up. They add up to distance between us, hurt, distrust, that are much more painful in the long run. Friends, taking shortcuts in marriage, in dating, in all our relationships, over choosing obedience to God's plan, will come back to bite us. Well, back to our story. So God has told the Israelites that they have not obeyed his voice in making a covenant with the Canaanites. They've taken shortcuts rather than carrying out God's plan. And as we saw, there would be consequences for their actions. The Canaanites would become a thorn in their sides. Their gods would become a snare to them. In our very short final section, we see that the Israelites respond in tears. Sorry, God, for what we've done. 2 verse 4, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called the place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Well, that sounds promising, doesn't it? After being found out and called out by God, the people respond the right way. It seems that they are genuinely sorry for what they've done. But will it last? Will these tears translate to a genuine change of heart? We'll have to wait and see. But our story ends with a chance for a new beginning, doesn't it? Despite what the Israelites have done, God gives them another chance. That's the reason why he rebukes them. And warns them, because he is always the God of second chances. Because he is a faithful God, a God who never gives up on his people. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Judges. Look again at what he says to Israel, 2 verse 1. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will always be faithful to my promises, he says. Even when those promises are the suffering that he sends when the people break his covenant. Because God sends suffering and pain to turn his people back to him. And we'll see that over and over again. Through the book of Judges, we saw it in the cycle in the kids' talk that we saw. God sends enemies to oppress the people, not because He's a sadistic God, but because He wants them to cry out to Him for deliverance and come back to Him. God rebuking His people and sending consequences for their disobedience is a sign of God's mercy. He doesn't just leave us to our own misery. And we see that in our own lives as well, don't we? When we sin, there will be consequences. God just doesn't, doesn't just leave us to our own devices, He doesn't just let us get away with our sin. Because He is a loving Father who never gives up on us and will do whatever it takes to make us cry out to him and turn back to him. And how can we be assured that God is still faithful to us like he was to the Israelites? Well, because he sent his son Jesus. He insisted on Jesus going to the cross to die for us so that he could win our sinful rebellious people back to himself and Jesus himself refused to take shortcuts he turned his back on pragmatic corner cutting as he wrestled with his father in prayer in the garden of gethsemane as he sweated tears of blood Faced with dying on the cross the next day, Jesus desperately longed for a way out, for a shortcut to glory that bypassed the suffering of the cross. But in the end, he chose that hard road of obedience for you and I. Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus in the garden cried out, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, that's how we know that God is still faithful. That's how we know that God does not give up on us that's how we know that we have a faithful God who loves us let's pray Father we thank you so much that uh, in your son we see most clearly your faithfulness your love your justice your goodness come together We thank you that we see the fulfilment of your word, of your word in judges, fulfilled in your son Jesus, as we see his faithfulness to us, as we see that he is a God who is passionate about his people, coming back to him, that you will not let go, you will not leave us to our own desires, to our own devices, no matter how disobedient and sinful we are. Father, help us hear this word of comfort. Uh, If needs be, help us hear this word of rebuke. And we pray, Father, that we may throw ourselves on you, uh, on our merciful God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.